0: Remember that song from your childhood, Little Boxes on a Hillside? The houses are all made of ticky-tacky and they all look the same. The song goes on to say that the people also all look the same. Now, looking at any newly built suburb with the uniformity of frontage, treescape and building material, you'd be forgiven for thinking that this must be true. But is it? Are all new suburbs the same? What lies beneath? And how does a suburb develop a unique community, its own personality? Over the years, I've watched as many apartment complexes have been built and settled, I've often wondered at the seemingly random ways in which they establish their personality. Some of these develop an amazing community through some sort of osmosis, while others, even those that have been specifically designed for community, fail to hit the mark and become white elephants. Why is this?
1: So when we start to look at the behaviour and lifestyle, we can see that the demographic actually isn't the right customer predictor, Um, that we should be looking at what they do, what they're interested in, what their behaviour and lifestyle patterns are, rather than necessarily their age and background.
0: download our free full or forecast report which experts can you trust to get it right the, the au. you know one thing covid-19 has done for us is to remind us of how important our local amenity is shopping exercising dining and socializing in small groups away from crowded spaces has reinvigorated many neighborhoods The social life of a suburb is so important for livability, connection, and belonging, and this has had a knock on effect with desirability and property prices. And today we're exploring the changing behaviour of people within their neighbourhoods and what this means for our cities with social data expert Lucinda Hartley. Now, Lucinda is an urban designer and co-founder of Neighborlytics, a global urban tech company drawing on public social data to capture the digital footprint of cities, giving real-time insight into neighbourhood life. So, we are very excited about this conversation, Lucinda, because you uh, have access to some pretty amazing data. So thanks for joining us. Pleasure.
1: Thanks for having me. It's
0: nice to chat.
2: Hi, Lucinda. Thanks for coming on. Um, I meant to kick us off, could you please explain to us, what is social data? <laughs> it's a good question.
1: Uh, so Neighbourlytics taps into the everyday footprints that we leave behind when we interact with our neighborhoods. So it's it's digital data that is reflective of behavior and lifestyle. So think mm-hmm. Google Maps, event pages, TripAdvisor, ratings and reviews. Uh, what it's not, uh, which is perhaps a, a common assumption is it's not personal data. So we're not looking at your personal P- Facebook profile or your personal yeah. LinkedIn account. What we're trying to understand is what's the digital footprint of a place based on the business activity the community activity and every day we leave behind literally millions of digital footprints through our smartphones and social media accounts about uh, the places that we live in.
2: And so how uh, in terms of your business are so you got uh, lots of different sources of data that you then aggregate um, to kind of track how people are moving and what people are doing is that kind of the, the idea behind the business?
1: Yeah we're looking at tent uh, the the specific question that we're looking at sir, is what is the behavior of a place what what's the what are the what are the humans doing I guess not necessarily what they're saying but what are they doing in a particular place so we layer many many different data sources to to find that uh, there's there's three kind of types of data there's place data which is a thing that will tell you whether a place is a, a park or a restaurant or a cafe and you might look at map based yeah. data but there's activity data that will tell you what's going on so things like opening hours events programs services etc and then there's another layer which we call engagement of stories which actually looks at you know do people like rate review check in talk about this place or not and by layering uh you know many different sources of data together we can build a picture of, of what a neighborhood looks like uh, so we actually create a proprietary data set but it's informed by data attributes that we find across a variety of those places activity and stories uh data
2: and are you finding i guess massive differences because i think you've done on lots of different neighborhoods now i think uh you know, a thousand or something um mm. and are you finding that you know they're all starting to become very similar or are you finding a few different categories in different sort of neighborhoods that people sort of you know i guess behave differently within their neighborhood.
1: Yeah, it, it's interesting. It, on one level we see trend, but then also what we highlight is immense differentiation, like much more mm. than is visible to the eye, and, and that always surprises me that you look at neighbourhoods that are that might look and feel kind of similar to each other. You know, uh, we've done a lot of uh, work with Greenfield property developers looking at um, neighbourhoods in emerging suburbs, which physically, even though they may be in different parts of the city, often have a similar footprint because they're built, sort of built by similar providers. Uh, but when yeah. you dig beneath them, surface you find that they have very very different social lives that in in one area everyone's very interested in small business and home-based business and in other areas it's it's much more about arts and creative activities and hobbies and in others there's a you know burgeoning kind of community services offering and these neighborhoods might be right next to each other or in different parts of the city but we see these kind of very unique social lives which also gives us a lot of clues about you know what's going on behind closed doors Um, uh, on the other side, that we do we do start to see some trends around types of places. So if we look at um, the maturity of neighbourhoods, so greenfield neighbourhoods might have more patterns in common than inner in urban neighbourhoods. Uh, places like innovation districts or you know high growth urban development precinct, high job growth urban development precincts, which we've looked at quite extensively around the world, they they physically look very different from each other. You know if you're comparing Barcelona or Kings Cross or um, uh, various other places, but they actually have similar kind of um, rhythms. So they have similar types of places in terms of destinations or um, activities to do and things like that. So it's a, it's a difficult question to answer because in one way yeah. we see the particularities of neighbourhoods that help us understand them in a very asymmetrical and local way. Uh, and then on the on the other side uh, we, we start to see these broader macro trends as well.
0: So you've got this sort of dichotomy by the sounds of it that it sounds like Quite often, an area that areas that look different might be quite similar underneath, but areas that look same could be very different underneath. That's so I'm right. sort of curious yeah. as to this sort of chicken and the egg sort of idea that um, you know, say in a greenfield site, you say that you know one could develop a, a sense of well, local a lot of little small businesses versus arts and crafts, etc how does that come about? Is that by osmosis? Is it by accident? Is it because, because sometimes I don't feel like it's by design, it's the people themselves, but what on earth attracts, especially when there's no history in an area or you've got no outward signs of something, how do you, how do people find people like them in these Mm. situations? What are the signs and clues? Yeah, I, I guess,
1: you know, we make a lot, you know, to the point of I guess a lot of what you talk about on this podcast, we make a lot of assumptions about neighbourhoods and we certainly make a lot of assumptions about who lives there and and it's because we look at things like demographic trends or, or um, things yeah. like that and that the fact that someone might be 35 and female doesn't mean that they're interested in the same stuff. So when mm. we start to look at the behaviour and lifestyle, we can see that the demographic actually isn't the right customer predictor um, that we should be looking at what they do, what they're interested in, what their behaviour and lifestyle patterns are rather than necessarily their age and background uh, <laughs> when it comes to actually planning planning for good places. So that those particular um, sort of particularities can emerge in that way. In terms of how people find each other, uh, I suppose there is, you know, certain types of people will be attracted to different places. What we would pick up in our data is how those um, those trends kind of emerge over time. And, and so what, one of the most interesting things I think that across naval edicts that we've observed is home-based businesses, and this particularly is—I mean, it's relevant right now, of course, during COVID when a lot of people are locked down. But it was really relevant beforehand when when we would look, particularly at, at residential suburban developments, um, whether they're greenfield or or infill, um, and there'd often be a, an assumption that during the day there wasn't a lot going on, and a lot of the yeah. infrastructure a lot of the infrastructure that supports those places caters for the fact that it's not a large business community. So if you think there's a lot of large infrastructure investment in public space, community services, uh, parents groups and things like that, and that's all true and that, you know, we should invest in those things. But what we've also found is that there's very high densities of home-based businesses and in in some of the developers that we've worked with based on that, instead of running mothers groups, they started running business meetups and what they realised is that they actually had a very active business community it just wasn't visible and so again just by looking at say the young family demographic we make these huge assumptions about what people are actually doing in that neighbourhood and actually maybe maybe what will attract them and the services and facilities they need we might be better to look at their behaviour and lifestyle patterns.
2: It's interesting because it's kind of I think a lot of the old design is all around sort of livability. I guess Mm. Um, where does the kind of well-being of not just the behaviour but you know, the happiness, I guess, of the people within the community. How does that kind of fit into the whole scheme?
1: Yeah, so the way that we define, so wellbeing has a couple of different definitions. And so what neighborlytics looks at is uh is whether a neighborhood uh, provides the level of opportunity to provide you with the physical and and mental health opportunities that you mm. need to support your kind of lifestyle uh, so it doesn't necessarily tell you in neighbor case whether someone is happy or not because that's a feeling mm. and we don't yeah. we don't measure feelings and sentiment we measure i guess the the level of opportunity uh, but where that's slightly different from livability is livability tells you what stuff you have access to and that's that's yeah. a critical part of well-being um but well-being is also like is it used and and do people like it and engage with it so you might have on one yeah. level um you might have a lot of parks but no one goes there and so <laughs> you might meet your livability metrics but maybe those parks feel unsafe um maybe mm they're underutilised or all, all the opposite might be true that you have one tiny little space and in terms of metres squared it's probably not enough to meet your minimum livability standards but people love it and it's it's always active and people are always going there so those are the kinds of things where looking at that behavioural lens gives us indicators of well-being not just livability.
2: Have you found places where on the tin it looks like it's got great livability but then the well-being I guess of that neighbourhood kind of show something completely different
1: yeah well, at the moment we're seeing patterns like that around things like public space so there's obviously been a much more dramatic shift in neighborhood change over the past six months than we would see in normal circumstances because of COVID and lifestyles really being turned upside down in in that regard um mm. but um when we look back at the the last six months and we've seen a, a pretty dramatic shift during during COVID and, and lifestyle and behaviour patterns, I guess on a scale that are really, you know, unprecedented to use the word that everyone's using but that's very much true in, in what's happening in neighbourhood level. But what we've seen when it comes to, say, things like livability or shifts in public space is we would normally sit, think and, and it absolutely is proven to be that public space is a really, really important uh, part of our yeah. well-being of neighbourhoods. Um, but what we've seen during COVID is the type of spaces that people use um, has shifted and therefore, I guess, highlighted some inequalities of access in the city. And so with, with yeah. um, you know, I'm in Melbourne and so, um, you know, playgrounds, sporting facilities, these kinds of public spaces that we normally would have access to are shut. Which leaves mm-hmm. more limited options of what you actually have access to, and so in our data, what we've seen is a very large increase uh, in engagement, which you know is, is is looking at the use and participation. Um, very large increase across um, Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane with nature, like up 112% um, engagement levels up in Melbourne, for example, but the use and, and participation in regular public spaces down 50%. Uh, And so that's sort of highlighted, I guess, our need for more natural green space to be resilient, not just, um, you know, sporting fields, playgrounds and other kinds of public spaces, which also help us with, with liveability.
0: There was some, actually, I read that report and there were some really interesting differences because, I mean, it was obviously, it was Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, right? Mm. And I guess that, that points to the same thing. We're all Australians, but there's was quite marked differences in usage up and down of various um, aspects of our, our neighbourhoods. Mm. Can you shed some light on that? I mean, you, so you reflect the behaviour, you just sort of you go deeper into Why?
1: Yeah, so we can make we can make inferences at why, uh, as to why, um, particularly when we look at the neighbourhoods in comparison to each other, or what we know about measuring those cities historically over time, and what's normal for that place. And and so we would expect Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane to behave differently in some ways under, under COVID because the level of lockdowns and the, and the government responses in different states has been different and we would expect to see sort of lifestyle impacts associated with that. And so in some instances, like with public space, the, the trends are kind of the same across the three cities, but they're more exaggerated in Melbourne and you might expect mm. that because the lockdowns have been more prolonged. Mm. Uh, but in other areas, it, it is like a little bit um, different. So for example, if I'm looking at hospitality, um, what we've seen, you know, hospitality is one of the industries that's been most impacted um, by COVID lockdowns, and that obviously has a huge impact to our commercial centres and activity centres as well. Uh, but in in Melbourne, we've seen kind of dining out and food and drink decrease, and home cooking up by four hundred percent. So that's really high. But in Sydney, we've actually seen not much decrease overall. Um, in food and drink uh, and so sort of the speculation there would be that perhaps some of those businesses were more digitally engaged to start with uh, and that they were able to retain some of their customers even through lockdown through pivoting to takeaways and, and things like that. So that's sort of one inference mm-hmm. that we could draw and what we would do to validate that would be to look at historical uh, data that we have for, for Sydney and, and how that's changing. Um, we might also look at perhaps the lockdowns in Sydney were not as prolonged and so, um, you know, the overall increase perhaps not as dramatic. Uh, but there hasn't been an uptick in home cooking in Sydney that we've observed, but there has been in Melbourne and Brisbane. So you can make your own assumptions about what Sydney siders are doing in terms of, um, you know, not, not cooking as much at home. Um, but, the, yeah, we are particularly, in this particular, it's the new local report that we released uh, last week as, as some of our, our COVID research um, we were looking at the CBD neighbourhoods. So, again, if you compare that to sort of some of the inner urban suburbs, you'll see changes again.
2: Mm. As an urban designer, I guess, do you think you would design a city differently now that you've gone through COVID or do you think that a lot of the rules or the the ways of thinking are very similar um, and what we were doing before was perfect, I guess? <laughs> <laughs> uh I think it would be difficult to say we were doing things perfectly before.
1: I mean, people people talk about a, a, a new normal, if you like, but, I you know, I often think, well, what, what's normal anyway? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I would say that, you know, we have really great aspirations um, for cities and certainly as an urban designer I have been involved with, watched, reviewed um, plans that are great. They've got all the right things. Um, yeah. They look like they're going to thrive, but the reality when they're built on the ground is that they don't. And that happens time and time again. Whether it's that we can't get tenancies to fill the retail, whether the apartments are selling as yes. fast as we thought they would, whether there's you know different other um, shifts happen, maybe we didn't get the product market fit quite right, and so. I would say that if we're looking at, you know, would we do things differently? Well, on paper we do things quite well. So where's mm. that? Where's that delta of not quite getting it right? And 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 the the place that Neighbourlytics tries to feel is that we don't actually understand the human side or the behavioural no. side very well. And so the reason why things like you know our, our local economies are they're very fragile. And understanding what's actually going to predict a great retail centre uh, uh, m- requires sort of a nuanced understanding of that trade area and that customer market. And we can really um, improve how we do things uh, by being more cognizant of the actual humans who are, are going to use those places um, and, and design around those kinds of needs. It's sort of that's sort of one sort of broader statement. But I think what will change, um, uh, or at least I hope has has changed, is we have for the past you know two decades, probably longer. Been very focused on destinations and building great destinations, sticky places, and everything's being focused around getting people to attend large places to spend and stay. And that's great mm. when you when you have no restrictions on physical distancing and, and a buoyant economy and, and various things like that. But the moment that shifts, those kinds of environments are not particularly resilient because they're not very diverse in their offering. Mm. Uh, and so mm. what I, I think we will need to be mindful of, whether it's to, to deal with climate change, whether it's to deal with... Um, you know I hope we don't have more pandemics or just you know an economic downturn people are more localized Uh, and so we we actually need to reinvent or rethink uh, local centers as well as not to the exclusion of but we need to give more time and attention to local centers uh, as well as um, you know the larger centers if we're going to have really kind of thriving markets moving forward.
0: It's quite so interesting, isn't it? Because you look at the Westfields of the world, you know, and they've, mm. they've, they've, you know, and it's like they're big advertising, you know, Australia's. The biggest shopping center in the southern hemisphere and <laughs> thing that sort of claim just even before COVID struck a chill into my heart because I hate that sort of places but um at the expense of obviously the neighborhood strips yeah and there's been a lot yeah. of a lot of programs you know if recent years to try to enliven and invigorate neighborhood uh shopping centers and so this is sort of putting the focus back on those neighborhood shopping centers right mm, then that's again right. you've you got to have businesses that can afford to establish or take on new leases, or you know, we've been relying on pop-up stores um, <laughs> in a lot of these local. That's um, right. Shopping strips for a while, so you know how to how to um, I guess. Where do we see this going? You know, you talk about like these beautifully designed spaces, and I've seen it many times. You think, how does that development just fall on its ass? And that <laughs> one over there, somehow, it just seemed to accidentally get the right mix of people who really got on really well and all really wanted to trade up within the development. You know what I mean? And yeah, and I've watched these buildings over time. You think you buy into that, but you wouldn't buy into that, and it doesn't really have anything to do with how the marketing was done in the first place, or even the no. build quality in some in some cases.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, unfortunately, there's not really very easy answers to that because it is it is very very complex. But I think sometimes that we what we overlook is the fact that um you know diversity of opportunity is very important for making those places resilient. So if one aspect of the development kind of didn't quite make it through with a kind of proposition, then other parts might. And and we we tend to at a neighbourhood level at least not always have all of the things that we need. Um, so I think planning for more diverse economies, um, more diverse living opportunities, um, more diverse housing stock, those kinds of things do, do help with both both market and community, you know, has the byproduct of community resilience as well, which is really positive. Uh, when it comes to local centres, I think what we envisage is is not so much that we would necessarily revive and this, this is, you know, obviously a very different conversation right now because there are so many local businesses who are really, really struggling and many who I, I think very sadly won't be able to make it through this time, possibly because they were already vulnerable from other, you know, market forces and impacts and digital transformation and things like that yeah i think the the reality is that we need to be able to access things locally but it doesn't necessarily need to mean that we need to access all of our shopping locally um because Mm -hmm. i think the the reality of digitization is is probably only being enhanced by covid um you know i Mm -hmm. think amazon has just hired another hundred thousand people and and various things like that so whatever there are some winners (laughs) in this -hmm. um and and I mean, I guess I'm in the kind of digital camp where I don't necessarily see that that's something to fight, but I think that's something to think about, well, what does, you know, what does a digitally engaged neighbourhood look like? I still want to be able to walk to my cafe. I still want to be able to access services locally. I still want to be able to go to parks with my kids and have great local experiences. So investing in local is still very much about creating great places to live. It doesn't necessarily mean I need to be able to access, you know, all of my hardware within walking distance. Um, but it does mean that I need to be able to access the things that I need for my physical and mental health within walking distance. So I I think helping local centres digitise in different ways um, is also one of our strategies that we can look through for post-COVID recovery.
2: So do you think that um, a lot of these new greenfield estates, I mean, uh, the idea behind it is you buy the farm and then you cut it up and then you sell it off, you know, as you know small as possible lots really (laughs) more likely it's going to be cheaper um and then if it's cheaper more people can afford it and so they're going to be easier to sell and um you know and the land's been getting smaller and smaller and it's Mm. not been about the commercial um or the well-being about that community it's about kind of selling land lots right do you think Mm. that's going to potentially shift in terms of The developer's going to look at it and go, right, let's build this around maybe a little, let's put the commercial hub in the middle, right? And have the the things that people want to walk to there and then start to build out from that rather than just building houses. Do you think that's going to become a real focus? I
1: hope it does, and I think if we look at the pattern over the past twenty years, we've made a huge amount of progress from going from essentially dormitory suburbs to you know new town centres on the fringe and yeah. that that is a huge step forward um to be able to have access to a certain level of amenity locally will always be important. But I think things like COVID have, um, you know, where there are at least in lots of cities around the world and and I know in Melbourne, like geographic boundaries of where you're allowed to travel to, that really, really exacerbates that question of, you know, do we actually have everything within walking distance? Well, often often not. Mm -hmm. And and I I think it's an important... It's an important economic strategy to actually consider that because if you imagine a world where work from home is more prevalent, and I actually would say work from anywhere rather than work from home. I I hate working from home. Like, honestly, get me out of here (laughs) as soon as you're allowed. But the idea that I wouldn't have to go to the office every day is very liberating, especially because I I often, well, used to at least travel a lot for work. Um, But if you can work from anywhere, like, and I think about it anywhere. Yeah why would you choose to like that's also going to dictate where you want to live as well and so why would you choose one suburb over another so the places themselves need to have a level of amenity that means that you choose not just on the price tag because you could live anywhere Um, you want to live there and I think that if we let that kind of drive some of our success metrics then that helps us think that we probably don't just want to carve up lots of as many kind of um, houses within commuting distances, possible probably what we want to create and we could do this very much within the same cost envelope you know create places with yeah. um the great amenity that people really want to live and build community in, because the, the work and the commuting factor is going to be less centralized
0: what sort of property developer would bother um getting the sort of information the insights that you can give them because i suspect not all would right
1: yeah, I think there's a level of scale where it becomes useful. So um, mm. for uh, if you're a sort of small-scale townhouse developer, the insights that we can give you, I, I mean, I still think they would be useful but would would you necessarily want it on every every project? Well, that, that's probably a decision that they could make. But where it becomes very useful is when we're looking at um, uh, apartment buildings, um, residential communities, particularly activity centres, shopping centres, new town centres, activity hubs around um uh, new transit uh, stations and things like that uh, because these are places that need to become destinations of some sort, uh, whether it's to attract buyers, whether it's to attract tenancies, whether it's to you know create a vertical village of sorts in, in an apartment building. Um, and so th- there's this kind of two main areas that we would work um, with property developers. One is to understand their customer value proposition much better because if they actually understand what the values and lifestyle are of the neighbourhood or yeah. if it's greenfield similar neighborhoods around it if it's not the one that actually exists then you're going to be able to target a much better product so understanding that the sort of um people not on a personal level but on a behavioral lifestyle to perhaps complement some of your other demographic information that you could look at is one area but the other part is understanding the place better because we make these big assumptions around what's popular what's valuable what people really are interested in if we if we if we're investing you know this might be in in an infill area and and we want to know what's actually going to stand out and be most successful. It's really great to know what your competitors are. Like what's the competitor retail in that area. And in in an experienced economy, the competitor may not necessarily be the thing that earns the most money. It might be the car boot sale at the local primary school and the YMCA. They are actually competitors for people's time and energy these days. And so if we understand that in one neighborhood those things are are more popular than then it really does inform what kind of investment we would need to make both in terms of you know services retail or product so those are the sort of two areas understanding the kind of the people behavior side and understanding the place side uh where we work um with developers uh the the other way and this is I guess my point of scale is because digital data is available anywhere anytime it enables you to look at like whole portfolio comparison very easily and effortlessly in a way that other kind of customer research such as surveys can't because it's often not very locally targeted um Mm. So if you've want, if you got 100 sites and you want to know how they're tracking or if you've got 10 or others and you want to be able to compare them or compare if if, if you're Westfield and you want to actually be able to compare to different ISVT centres or something like that, you can because it's digital data and you can actually just compare them side by side to understand where the, where the opportunities are. So that comparison um, is something that a lot of customers use digital data for.
0: theelephantintheroom.com.au.
2: In In terms of um, the cities as a whole, is there any things that you think that Australians, I know that we win awards, you know, Melbourne, most livable city 10 years in a row, but then maybe not the last couple of years. But, um, (laughs) you know, things around the world. I know we're pretty good, but, you know, that other countries and other cities uh, have got lots of that we've got not enough of, I guess.
1: Mm. I would say on the whole that we don't we haven't done density very well and so when when because we're looking at cities through the well-being lens we will look at cities that are you know 10 times more dense than Australian suburbs uh and have yeah. similar or better well-being indicators uh or uh you know in terms of their access to support and and I think that's helpful to know that the density doesn't always get a um good rap or we we don't necessarily always yeah. It doesn't always trend in a really positive direction in in Australia. I think we've got we're improving with our density, but it's not always the right kind of density. Um, right. As we can learn from other cities uh, who've achieved density, but have done it in a way that didn't compromise livability and well being. And I think that gives us clues as to how we can go about that here.
0: So, what are the poster children of that? Yeah.
1: <laughs> People like to hold up places like Barcelona and, and um, you know, Copenhagen and things. And I think that's good in terms of physical um, design, in terms of, you know, looking at eight stories rather than 30 stories. Mm. You know, eight, eight stories yeah. in every block rather than 30 next to four is actually yeah. better better density overall. So I think that's good. But I also think that we can be. Uh, it can be difficult for us to sort of cookie-cutter, copy other cities because it doesn't always take into account the fact that there's very, very different cultural and behavioural patterns great. and lifestyles and things like that. Actually, there's some quite good models coming out of Asia as well. Singapore's one. KL's got some good examples as well, um, which are possibly in some ways closer to what the Australian market is doing than looking at kind of the historic European centres, which have got some good lessons too but uh perhaps... Um, so in some ways, can be harder to to replicate culturally uh, in 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 within the sort of the, the constraints that we have with our our planning markets and things like that. Is that but because yeah. they've
0: sort of got old? They've got you know the old cent, historic centre of town, and then their sprawl looks different. You know their their urban sprawl is sort of outside that, but it's a very similar density, right?
1: Yeah, well, even the sprawl is sort of high density, so I think that's where mm. the good lessons are. The sprawl is still sort of six stories, <laughs> yeah. perhaps maybe yeah. not eight to ten, and I think that there is very good lessons there in terms of what tends to happen in successful places, no matter where they are, is that there is co-investment of, uh, you know, transit and infrastructure or public space upfront with the density, and so it, it it perhaps mitigates and offsets the idea that you might have density without. Uh, uh, amenity and service, because the whole point of density <laughs> is to make make the amenity and service more affordable and more distributed. Um,
0: yeah, because yeah. obviously that's been a big, big issue with our sprawling outer suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne in particular. Um, you know, the, the suburb gets built, and then afterwards they sort of retrofit the uh, infrastructure. But I mean, Melbourne now is like, isn't it, a hundred kilometres wide?
1: Yeah, it's absolutely enormous. I mean, it's it's many, many times bigger than Greater Paris, um, uh, for example. I think like the uh, Paris covers. I can't remember the exact statistics, but it's something like Richmond to Footscray is Paris or something like that. (laughs) And And there's there's a lot more people living in Paris, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So it's possible, and I think that's where it's good to look for for clues for you know how we can um, work harder.
0: But is this part of the Australian psyche? You know, you've got to have your house on your, it's not even a quarter acre block, it's like a quarter of a handkerchief block these days. Um, you know, is it, is it still, we, we just can't seem to get ourselves out of that, that sort of thinking?
1: Right now that feels that way, but I think there is a generational shift upon us where that won't be viable anymore. I think if mm. you look at millennial trends around, you know, work from anywhere, um, completely digital lifestyle, you're probably going to rent uh, or subscribe to your car, not own one. Uh, you want to live. So therefore, if, if mobility is taken out of the question and Um, where you work is taken out of the question, then you're going to work, you want to live then in the most exciting place. So then experience becomes everything and therefore you're less concerned about having your sort of little kingdom, I guess, and you're more concerned about what you have access and amenity to. And there's very, you know, strong leaders around the millennial market that's sort of leading towards that. So that's not going to be an immediate shift. Uh, But I I think that the writing's on the wall in lots of ways that, what the market will want moving forward is actually uh, a more flexible and dynamic kind of relationship with uh, work, which will make some of those questions around, you know, Can we have more family-style apartments? Can we have all things like that? uh, Much more viable. And certainly if we look at, like, Copenhagen and other cities like that, and I I always sort of, like, sort of cringe when I hold them up as examples because everyone does, but there are some things that they've done very successfully, I think, around building an apartment market for families and allowing people to grow in place in in the density and not needing to move out as soon as... You know, you have children because there's just literally, you know, you can't do it in a one-bedroom studio type thing, I I think allows a lot more flexibility of how people work. So thinking about the diversification of opportunity within density uh, is something that I think the millennial market will really, really um, be driving.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest issue, right, like for housing affordability is, uh, you know, millennials or singles or even young couples, you know, there's options, right, for them to uh, buy an apartment or you know it's not housing you know problems there per se it's really once the family comes along and they go you know we really want a three bed or we really want a little bit of outdoor space and then there's not enough of them and then the prices are astronomically much more higher and we haven't been building anything as an alternative sort of for that family market and um, there's a lot of catch up to do because every year there's more and more people wanting that and we still haven't been building it so do you think that developers are actually going to to make that shift, and how long it's going to take to to really have a viable alternative to what we've currently been doing?
1: Well, maybe COVID will be the shakeup that we need to uh, create that, because our the, you know perhaps the housing, the solid basis of the housing market that we've relied on has been shaken up, and will Uh, need to diversify uh, more in its offering. I mean, it's hard for anyone to take a risk uh, or what's perceived as a risk in these kinds of areas. So if we look at the data, whether it's behavioural lifestyle data from Navalytics or or other demographic trends or or, uh, other information available, there is is a lot of support that would say that... um, if we build a more diverse housing stock, there is demand for that. Um, yeah. Whether it's looking at the waiting lists um, for Assemble and Nightingale or others, yeah. others like that, there, there's plenty of evidence there that's demand <laughs> it does. It does require people to take um, just a little bit. Of risk.
0: But on the flip side, you get the argument, well, you know, if there wasn't a market for it, we wouldn't build it, you know, and so we wouldn't build all these crap one and two bedroom apartments. we <laughs> wouldn't build all these horrible, you know, cheek to jowl uh, project homes in the outer suburbs. Um So I just wonder, because I mean, I know you've done a lot of research on, on those outer suburbs and what's going on. Uh, do people buy them because they don't perceive there's any alternative or do they, they actually really want them?
1: Yeah, it's a difficult question to answer, and and I think there's people will come at that question from a lot of different um, cultural backgrounds as well around what's seen as yeah. valued and and what's different, um, whether it's status or, or other. Um, you know, often people are buying into those locations because they have friends and family and other networks in that yeah. neighbourhood already uh, in those those areas. So the particular drivers are. are pretty nuanced in different places. And I, I think what Navalytics would show you is kind of what's actually going on when people are there uh, and how do we understand that to inform our, our future decisions.
0: I guess those outer suburbs and what leads people to to move there or live there and it's a bit of chicken and the egg in a way, isn't it, really?
1: Yeah, there is chicken and the egg. And, I, I you know, on one level there there is a, a, a market and I think people do want us to have a uh, house and land and and various things like that but that when you add in things like the pandemic there's a lot of things that make that kind of investment much less viable than perhaps it was before Um, when people are uh, needing to work from home and access things locally and and be uh, part of that uh, local economy that might not be as um, active or have as much access to service and things like that um, so I think we will see a big sort of post-pandemic shift in terms of um, the the type of market that's uh, available and, and particularly I think that will impact uh, both, uh, you know, the, the very, very small apartment, large sort of tower types <laughs> and it will affect mm. the, the the outer greenfield areas because those areas are already more vulnerable because they're less diverse in terms of their economy and offering. And yeah. that's going to be one of the big factors that's affected by COVID.
2: And do you buy into the, we've already started to see it, I guess, in Sydney, and it's a lot easier to do these things at the moment, unfortunately, for a lot of people in Melbourne. Um, but do you think that a lot of people will start to, uh, you know, rethink whether, you know, buying in a ring of, say, Brunswick or Northgate or, Foot's great. Um, instead of buying there, now they want to buy in, you know, Mornington Peninsula or Geelong or Ballarat, et cetera. Do you think that you will see a lot of the buyer preferences? Because there's more options with work from home, um, a lot of people in, say, Melbourne will, will actually relocate to, fringe sort of lifestyle pockets?
1: I expect that that will be uh, a trend that we see. And we've already seen it already in terms of like the, um, whether it's people on long-term rentals during lockdown or, um, you know, relocating to holiday houses if they're, if they're lucky enough to have one. Uh, you know, what we've already seen is the data volumes in, in perhaps coastal or adjacent um, towns to, to major centres have really, really increased uh, during COVID and so we're already seeing patterns of that right now but I suspect that there are many people who you know oh I'd love to live down the Mornington Peninsula but I work in the city um if yeah. you if you sort of turn that equation and say well you only have to go in one or two days a week how that might change your decision making um so I, I actually think that the work is going to be uh, a critical factor in in seeing uh, a lot more demand on um, adjacent I guess you know sea change tree change um, locations.
0: So so what are you seeing in the data already that's you know that's picking this sort of thing up?
1: Yeah I mean at the moment because we, we measure places on demand um, and capture the data uh, particularly sort of when customers are looking at it our, mm-hmm. our view of um, regional tree change areas is, is not complete in 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 all of them but the 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 minimum thing that we're seeing is that there's an increase in activity based on normal so just the data volumes there's more people there there's more people Mm. there doing more things um and the the things that they're doing are are, are not hugely different from what we're seeing in urban centers so you know more engaged with nature and amenity less engaged Mm. um uh less engaged with things like hospitality and um attractions and destinations and things that are, are, are you know, closed in many regional centres uh, as well. But I think but the, that- the volume itself shows a, uh, perhaps a level of engagement and activity with those places that, you know, in a normal kind of winter months wouldn't be there.
0: But could that also be, though, because we can't travel um, even interstate's difficult, almost impossible. We can't travel overseas, so we are travelling locally. And if we're going to drive, we don't want to drive that far. So <laughs> could, could that be really a reflection of the fact we're holidaying there?
1: Yeah, that's likely a factor as well. Um, so Linux looks at what people are doing what's they're, they're there and they're in a particular location uh, so mm. that that uh, attraction can be from, from visitors as well as people who might be there, you know, on a semi-permanent basis.
2: Yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see that sort of trend and come back in a year or two, right. And actually see if that activity is still pretty constant once borders are open and people can travel, then uh, maybe the town's not, you know, the rural towns aren't going to be so sleepy. towns anymore, You know, and then that changes everything, right. If people, then businesses start opening up and then that creates more demand. And then, you know, the local economy starts, you know, you know, more people want to move there, et cetera. So, You know, maybe it's just a a match to sort of light those sort of cities up because I think that's one of the, you know, to keep growing the population, we can't just keep on making Melbourne and Sydney bigger and we need to have these other alternatives growing as well.
0: Yeah. I've got a bit of a theory on this. I Mm -hmm. I think that wherever you can get really good coffee, (laughs) you know, that's a sign that there's enough demand that has moved into the area that's causing, you know, calling for that. That's my theory. It might be yeah, completely yeah. unfounded. Um, that would
1: be a very interesting thing to validate, actually. I might like
0: <laughs> look at that. The coffee meter. Yeah, absolutely.
2: So flipping this back the other way, though, like instead of thinking there are pockets outside the city, like if you think about uh, my theory, Veronica, is probably that uh, we'll do that once as long as housing's affordable um, because a lot of what's driving that is the house um and then so you will probably see growth in these housing markets um because people are like wow it's cheap and that pushes up those markets but then once houses become more expensive in these areas comparable and there's only so many even though there's a lot of land out there there's only so many houses because they're much smaller Mm. um, they can very easily get undersupplied and, and lots of demand and push up prices and then um they can't really build any like old heritage homes in, say, Ballarat, for example. There's none left, right? So yeah, yeah. Um, so then you'll find people who are like, you know what, I still enjoy living in the city. I'm not going to move there because it's um, not that much cheaper anymore. Um, yeah. What can we do to improve inner city life, I guess, and, uh, you know, things that would potentially, I don't know, uh, no more cars in the city, you know, yeah. uh, more bikes, etc. I know Melbourne's getting good at that. So what are some of the things? Aren't they all in we- the Yarra? All those bikes,
0: and they all end up in the in the Yarra. Yeah, the O bikes. Yeah, that was a short-lived. Uh... <laughs> yeah,
1: that 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 model of um, rent from anywhere didn't quite work with the Australian no. culture. <laughs> well,
2: people like quite things quite neat, and in certain places, and you know, not in the middle of the walkway. But you now, what are some of the things you think that we should be doing? I mean, I know in Sydney, around Central Station, for example, they've just announced this week that um, they're going to create a massive square. Mm. Uh, so people can kind of go and congregate there. Now it could just be a dead zone, but you know, ideally they're trying to create something like you'd see in Europe. You know, like you'd there's entertainment there, there's an open sort of plaza sort of feel. But do you think there's things that we need to be doing in, our, in a city to to make them much more livable?
1: Yes, I do. I, I think what we've seen is a, a, an increase in density across the board, which is a good thing, but we haven't seen a proportional increase in public space. And, you know, you might say, well, there's no no space available, but there is always space available. Like 80% of our public space network is actually streets. And so if you think that there's only a very small proportion of streets available for, you know, play or pedestrian use right now, then there's huge opportunity for repurposing car parks, rooftops, sidewalks, you know, underutilised streets uh, for green spaces. And if we're going to have more density and Uh, then we need to have more space for people to be active outside. That's kind of the offset that needs Mm -hmm. to be planned for. And there's certainly been some, but not to the level that's uh, proportional to the population increase. So that's where I would start. But to do things like, you know, actually increase, you know, the greater green metres squared area, you do have to do things like take out streets uh, or take out vehicle access to streets. So that creates other... Uh, reconceptualizations of, you know, well, how do we get people less people driving more into public transport and particularly cycling is a big thing in, um, that can be promoted in when there's short trip destinations in inner cities. So that that's the piece of the puzzle that really needs to be sustained if we're going to continue at density. It's not really long term possible to have density without that because then you end up sort of cannibalizing your own mobility yeah. and then you end up cannibalizing your own value proposition and market because. That's not how people actually can live in the long term. So we're kind of in a space right now where we actually have opportunity to shift the dial on this, uh, but it will take proactive steps. But, we, we, you know, we've seen that in New South Wales with huge investment in public open space in the last 6 to 12 months and there certainly yeah. they've got a Premier's priority on public space which is driving a lot of that. And I suspect, you know, the announcement yesterday that Melbourne's putting another $100 million into open streets as part of having um, outdoor okay. hospitality as COVID response over the summer, I, I think that will help change people's mindsets because, you, you know, you talk about taking away cars and people panic but then... Uh, because you know that feels like a loss but if you if you think well imagine if we could have like Brooklyn New York style open streets um, just outside oh. our, our houses well that actually feels quite good I'd be quite happy to not drive so much if I, if I got that in return so I, I hope that some of these kind of demonstration projects that the city's planning over uh, the summer will be enough to help sort of change mindsets around um, some of those tricky decisions uh, around public
0: space. One of the pretty cool things about COVID is it, it's really sort of prompted some innovative thinking and problem solving and I think that outdoor uh, solution in yeah. Melbourne is is really interesting but obviously it's weather dependent and it is a bit of a, a difficult city for that. But mm. I, I look to Singapore as well and you mentioned Singapore earlier yeah. because, you know, I guess it's got a benevolent dictator that runs a joint but, you know, didn't he set out to have this absolute goal of of was it 50% of um space to be green space or garden space you really wanted it was proactively designing a garden city is, is that Absolutely. correct
1: yeah I, I forget shows. the actual percentage but there's a percentage of public space it's also a percentage of canopy cover that the city's only 60 percent canopy cover which is you know not that hard to do really at the end of the day like plant trees um but yeah it does um that kind of when you have that kind of mandate you can then it, it actually just changes your whole economic dynamics and you can make it fit within that Uh, because everyone's playing from the same playing
2: field. Hmm. So, Lucinda, have you got a property dumbo for us?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Something that didn't work?
2: No. It's it's basically any any type of thing or any story or I can say basically a story is the best, you know, where you know someone or someone done something where you think, uh, yeah, it wasn't the greatest of moves and this is a lesson that, you know, we can learn from, I guess.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I can probably point to a few, but, uh, you know, the things that, that come to mind for me is is I guess the, the way that we're looking at ground floor retail in um, apartment buildings as just a fact. Um, mm. <laughs> and that might seem controversial because I'm very uh, much an advocate of great street life uh, in lots of ways, but I think if we uh, – I have been involved with as an urban designer, and you know, I won't I won't call out very you know particular examples, but I you know yeah. can all imagine the the kind of one or two ground floor shops that are vacant long term, and yeah. Yeah. then um, uh, the the apartment tower there. Now, the objective there is really good. So, if we focus back on the objective rather than the outcome, I think we yes. we could we could actually achieve it. But what we're often making those decisions in absence of is, is context. So is there an actual you know viable economic market there but the objective there is about activating the street it's not about having two small businesses there it's about having you know not having like a solid private interface in the street so if we take that away there's so many things that could be it could be community space for the building it could be a library it could be a service provider it could be like many many things so um i i think that that's there are some sort of blanket rules that we have around planning that um, have good objectives, and that, but if we if the execution of those is very, very poorly done. Um, and in my view, that comes back to us not really understanding our economic ecosystem, us not really understanding our customers, and, and not really having very good insight in the places that we're building in the first place. So, that's, to me, that comes back to sort of the data question. But overall, I think that's a very common blight yeah. on our city. Is, uh, Uh, vacant retail in new buildings particularly in new areas and it's a it's a difficult one to solve um, if if the only thing we could put there is a cafe Uh, I think if we diversify (laughs) what what that definition of activity means um, then there is lots of different um, schools communities all sorts of things that could be involved in providing that activation
0: It's such a good point because it really is all about the mindlessness of so much of our development, isn't it? It's like, Mm. oh, it's got to have, it's like I I look at, I think if you're going to put a Dumbo for developers, I think those apartment buildings that are built on main roads and they've got balconies facing yeah. the main road. Why couldn't they have all the lift wells, <laughs> the, the bathroom windows, the bloody laundry windows, all that stuff facing the main road and all the balconies and all the orientation the apartments completely away from the main road? It's just like, well, you build a building, they have, they have balconies and so there's no thought into where they are and whether anyone's going to use them.
2: Mm, yeah, that's right. And you can get so over, oversupplied and I was talking about undersupplied in these sort of rural towns where um, – Yeah, but in this situation, you know, there's usually if it's a high rise development um, or even medium rise, they're probably not the only one doing a development, right? It's so there's going to be a lot when they all finish in three years' time, they're all trying to lease their commercial, and um, (laughs) yeah, there's just nowhere near enough people wanting them. And then what your whole idea of what you were trying to create, right, that sort of street life well, it's a bit like you don't want to walk along that street because everything's for oh, yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, that's
2: right. <laughs> and, yeah. So it just, and then it just completely, yeah, you know, shoots everyone in the foot. So, mm-hmm, yeah, good, good. that's a very good Dumbo. Yeah, I and mean, I think the biggest thing is for us to, um, you know, get better data so we can make better cities. And I think if we, um, you know, I think before it's just about, well, what are we going to sell? Um, what do we need? Well, let's just build that um, rather than actually trying to look at the data to figure out what we need. So I guess it's a very... Uh, exciting business to be part of i i I assume
1: yeah it's it's really fun it's exciting and uh, you know despite all the changes we've had this year i think from a data perspective it's actually very interesting uh to look at the covid impact so yeah thank you chris and veronica it's a pleasure to chat
0: Absolutely. We've I've uh, popped in the the show notes as well, the um the link to your new local data report. So if anybody's interested in looking at that, then they can click on that link and um and sign up for it. I've also put the link in the show notes uh, to the lyrics for Little Boxes on the Hillside for anyone who wants to go down memory lane. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Most of our listeners are too young for that. Uh, <laughs> We want to make you a better elephant rider, and this week's elephant rider training is...
0: Let's uh, talk a little bit about um, buying outside of the city. It's, uh, I literally just came back from a week's driving up the north coast of New South Wales, and you know, and I don't want to rub it into our Victorian listeners, but've <laughs> been enjoying a little bit of freedom. And um, you know we, we stopped in at uh, just outside of Newcastle with some friends there, and also then we went up to the hinterland of Byron. and everywhere we, everyone we spoke to were talking about the fact that Sydney siders are buying up property big time, en masse. And it's sort of interesting because I know when I was filming the show, we did quite a lot of the, you know, Sea and Tree Changer episodes. And I just wanted to, um, I guess, remind people of the dangers of buying outside the city without properly researching the area. And often what happens is that the locals know that the the out-of-town is coming in and they love it because they tend to pay too much money or they pay more money than anybody else. Um, Prices start rising as a result of that, of course. But also, they don't necessarily know the ins and outs that the locals know, you know, they don't necessarily know what rose flood uh, when it's torrential rain, or where you've got too much shadow in summer or winter, or, you know, all those sort of local nuances that um, the locals will go, oh, God, I wouldn't buy there because of X, Y, Z. And yet, a city a city slicker hapless would rush in there and think oh it's beautiful i love it particularly at the moment because we're no longer in drought yeah. <laughs> and a lot of these places you know only you know a year ago were brown and now they're lush and green and yeah. so i think that um, you know sydney Ciders in particular but you know i'm talking about sydney Ciders in this particular case but anybody looking at moving out of the city needs to take time and care to actually observe and understand the local uh, amenity and, and lifestyle, what constitutes a good property, what constitutes a good area. A lot of people, um, you know, after moving, they move in, they buy in a hurry and if they'd actually yeah. taken their time to research area, even rent there for a while they may not have bought in that particular pocket they would have yep. bought somewhere else and certainly there's a lot less mobility when you buy in a regional area than there is in, a, in an urban area so you, you're you stuck there so it's it's well i just encourage people to absolutely take their time and understand that you can't put you can't view these areas with a city lens
2: yeah i we are finding um you know a dramatic change we're seeing lots and we had a, kind of trickle number of clients buying in say Central Coast or outside of Sydney um, over the last five or six years and most were you know they'd talk about it but then ultimately they would buy in Sydney um, but just in the last probably six months we've had you know quite a lot of clients buy from the Central Coast um, lots of clients looking down towards Cyr quite a few clients have bought in that sort of pocket as well um, and you know they don't haven't lived in these areas they haven't grown up in these areas Um, and, you know, there's lots of mistakes you can make in terms of what the locals wouldn't want to live and where, um, you know, gets too busy over summer and you mm. really know that because it was winter and the way that the sun will change from winter to summer. Um, and there's so many things that you can just make mistakes that the locals won't want. And, um, yeah, the problem is, though, if, if it, it makes sense, go rent there for a year. But there's probably... More- yeah, yes, probably. You There's not know a lot of to...
0: rentals; they're all on Airbnb.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's true as well. Mm. Um, and you know, in a in a rising market, if you think about you know what areas are potentially going to rise over the next couple of years, what well, areas that um, like this where the commute was factored into the price, mm. not the lifestyle or the livability of it, yep. and now that the commute has changed in terms of its uh, you know negative or positive. Um, you know, that, the prices will get changed. And so, you know, if you come, you go rent for a year, you could find yourself chasing the market and you can't afford where you wanted to buy anyway. So um, you've just got to be, you know, doing your research, don't over rush your decision, but just going up there for a couple of weeks, weekends on Airbnb and thinking you're going to understand the city. Um, I try to really get your research done as quick as you can. Um, and maybe it takes you three months, you know, of renting rather than renting for a full year. But you know, you need to do the legwork because we've already started to see, um, you know, clients almost make mistakes. And so we just think that, uh, yeah, it's definitely going to happen, but you just got to do it smartly.
0: join us for our next episode and we actually interview an accountant with a personality. Not only does this accountant have a personality, he's a mortgage broker, a financial advisor and a licensed builder. Kim Nitschie joining us to talk about lots of things around structuring for properties, both your own home and investments, around the tax breaks, around also why doctors don't necessarily make great property investors.
2: reach out via our website wealthful.com.au
0: if you're a first home buyer and you don't want to miss a step with this most important purchase join me on wednesday nights at 7 30 pm sydney time on the home buyer academy facebook page for live q a check out the
2: website homebuyeracademy.com.au every month my team hosts a webinar on what we are seeing at the banks the best rates changing policy and their service We also share the latest insights we hear and read that are impacting the property market direction. Check out wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.